Good morning again. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 17. You can also find those verses printed in the back of your bulletin. And if you were here last week, you may remember that the great question that Jesus left us with last week was found in Luke 18, verse 8. Jesus said this, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In other words, will Jesus find people prepared for his second coming or not? Uh, In his teaching for this week, Jesus explains the nature of the faith that he is looking for. Now, so please follow along with me as I read from Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. People were bringing infants to him so that he might touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them, let the little children come to me and do not stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the year 1517, 1517, the German monk Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, Luther's intent was to start a debate with the Roman Catholic Church, the church that he was a monk in at the time, over some teachings with which he disagreed. Instead, as you probably know, Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation and the split from the Catholic Church instead. Well, at the the heart of the Protestant Reformation was the biblical doctrine of justification. In other words, how is a person justified or made right before God? How can guilty sinners be declared righteous before a holy God. In other words, how can a person be saved? Well, the Catholic Church taught and continues to teach that people are justified by a combination of their faith plus their own good works. The Catholic Church teaches that in order to be justified before God, in order to be saved, sinners have to cooperate with God's grace by performing good works that will earn God's favor and God's acceptance. In Catholic doctrine, for instance, sinners must continually earn forgiveness by performing ongoing acts of penance throughout their life. They have to 
have last rites, or they want to have last rites to ensure that their sins have been forgiven before they die. Well, in contrast, Luther and the Reformers asserted that justification is by faith alone. Which is another way of saying that salvation is by God's grace alone. Salvation is a, is a gift of God. Oh, the Reformers taught that Christians are not saved because of their own good works, but sinners are justified or made right with God because of a righteousness that is not their own. Instead, at the moment of salvation, Christians are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And therefore, on the basis of Christ's righteousness, they are declared righteous in the sight of God. All their sins, past, present, and future, are instantly forgiven. Friends, that forgiveness is not something that we earn, but it is a gift of God's grace that may only be received by faith. Good works are... Therefore, not the way that one earns salvation. We do not have to cooperate with the grace of God. But good works are important. They are an evidence of the salvation that we have been freely given. Good works matter. Just not the way that we earn our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works. So that no one can boast. Justification is by faith alone. It's the clear teaching of the Bible and it is the clear teaching of Jesus in our verses for this morning. If you only remember one thing from this sermon this morning, let it be this. That salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. I have uh, three points to help us consider that idea this morning. That is what we are going to be exploring this morning. The first is two different men. That's the first point of the sermon. Second, two different prayers. Two different prayers. And then third and finally, two different destinies. So first, two different men. Like he did last week, Luke helpfully gives us the divinely inspired purpose of Jesus' parable here. He wrote that Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In other words, to those who trusted in their own efforts. To those who trusted that they were pretty good people. To those who were trusted that they were good enough on their own. To those who had faith in themselves. But friends, is this not what society preaches to us today? Just believe in yourself. All you need is a little bit of self-esteem. Just believe in yourself. But friends, that is not biblical faith. Kids, do not listen to that message. True faith, biblical faith, is not to rely on yourself. But instead, it's to rely on Christ alone for salvation. Now look at verse 9 for a moment. Notice the attitude that is produced when you trust in yourself. It's an attitude of self-righteous judgmentalism. It's an attitude of pride. If you place your trust in the wrong things, and if you treasure the wrong things, if you rely on the wrong things, well, what will overflow out of your heart will also be the wrong things. Out of the evil of their heart, evil overflows. 
For those who trust in themselves and their own righteousness, the overflow will be arrogant pride and self-righteous judgmentalism. My friends, you might have sinful pride in a host of different things. And we could just go down the list and think of things that we might, tempted to be, we might be tempted to be proud about. Our own accomplishments, your wealth, your intellect. Kids, maybe it's the good grades that you receive in school. You might have pride in your ethnicity or tribe. But the most dangerous form of pride is spiritual pride. That's what Jesus rebukes in these verses. It is the pride of moral superiority. My friends, if you are trusting in your own works and and your own righteousness for salvation, if that's what you think is your hope for eternal life, that's going to be your hope when Jesus returns, that he's going to come and he's going to find you as pretty good. My friends, if you are trusting in those, if that is your only hope, well, how do you seek to justify yourself? How do you seek to be made right in God's eyes? How do you soothe your guilty conscience or forget the the shame when you are convicted of sin? That's by convincing yourselves that you're a pretty good person. It's by convincing yourselves, well, I may make mistakes, but I'm, I'm certainly better than most. It's by finding ways that you can think of yourself as better and more righteous than those around you, so you can feel assured of your own salvation. Or you can ease your guilty conscience. Or you can forget some of your past sins that you are ashamed of. Friends, if you are trusting in your own righteousness, it means your means of justification is to exalt yourself and look down on others. This leads to jealousy when others are praised and when others do good because that is a threat to you. Friends, if that is you, if you are trusting in your own righteousness, let verse 14 serve as a warning. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. So friends, Jesus began his parable by telling of two men who went to the temple to pray. The first, a Pharisee. Now, according to New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner, when we hear the word Pharisees, we think of hypocrites, of religious show-offs who live to get the praise and honor from people instead of God. These things were largely true of the Pharisees. We've thought a lot about that as we have gone through the, the scriptures and we've gone through the Gospel of Luke. They were, in some ways, the epitome of those who trusted in their own righteousness. But Tom Schreiner went on to write this. We miss the force of the parable if we think of the Pharisee as a terrible person. When Jesus first told the parable, his hearers, those who were listening, had a different point of view. The Jews of Palestine in the first century did not think of the Pharisees as hypocrites or religious show-offs. The Pharisees were the most respected religious group in Jesus' day. What Jesus said about the Pharisee was designed to shock us so that we would look at our own lives. If the best and most religious people of Jesus' day were not pleasing to God, then everyone is in trouble. Friends, we have the benefit of the New Testament. Those who were listening to Jesus' parable would not have thought about the Pharisees as we so often think about the Pharisees today. 
No, they were seen as the best and most religious people of the day. Jesus' point is if they are in trouble, then everyone is in trouble. The, the other man who went into the temple to pray was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors in Jesus' day were despised. They were seen as those who had betrayed their own community, as those who had betrayed their own people by working for the hated Roman government. They were also hated and despised because they were corrupt. They commonly stole from the people. They used their authority, the authority that they were given by the Roman government, to extort more money out of people. They made people pay more taxes than what they really owed, and they would keep the extra for themselves. Therefore, tax collectors were seen as the low of the low, the worst of sinners. This was a class of people that was very easy to look down on. Therefore, the contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector in these verses could not have been greater. You've got the Pharisee up here, and you've got the tax collector way down here. Friends, two very different men went into the temple to pray. And they prayed two very different prayers. That's the second point of the sermon, two different prayers. Now let's just say, as we examine the, the prayers of these two men, that not all prayers are created equal. Friends, your heart attitude, the attitude of your heart, matters greatly to the Lord. Friends, God hears you not because of the greatness of your deeds, but because of the humbleness of your heart. Well, the prayer of the Pharisee was not a prayer of humility. He stood by himself, likely in a place of prominence, and he prayed about himself. Yes, he paid lip service about being thankful to God, but these words of thanks were hollow. Well, they were insincere. He was really using his prayer as an opportunity to boast about himself, outwardly saying thank you to God, but inwardly thinking that God should really be thankful for him. The Pharisee was pleased that he was not like other people who he considered to be far more sinful than himself. He was especially satisfied that he was a better person than the tax collector who he saw standing in some far corner of the temple praying to God. Friends, this Pharisee was blind to his own sinfulness. My friends, he was not just thankful that he was not like other people. He also took time to exalt himself. He boasted about all that he had done for the Lord. He had fasted twice a week, and he had given great tithes to the Lord. Both of these things that he lifts in our verses go beyond the basic requirements of the law. And so this is the Pharisee's way of saying that he was extra, super holy. Uh, like the famous boxer Muhammad Ali the Pharisee thought, I am the greatest. Well, in his short booklet, From Pride to Humility, the author Stuart Scott writes that one of the clearest expressions of spiritual pride is to maximize, maximize the sins and shortcomings of, other, of others while minimizing or downplaying your own sins. You think that others... You always think that others have great sin. It's always them and their sin that is the problem. But you think of your own sins as minor. 
as no big deal, easily excusable, perhaps even the fault of these other people who have such great sin. Friends, this is why proud people rarely ask for forgiveness from God and others. In fact, they're not at fault. Or if they are at fault, certainly the other people are at far more fault than they are. Friends, this is exactly what the Pharisee did. Not once in his prayer in the temple did he mention his own sin or ask for God's forgiveness. No, he was focused on everyone else. A church, if we are to avoid being like the Pharisee, we first must see how we are exactly like the Pharisee. How quick can we be to think, thank God that I am not like that Pharisee. I praise the Lord I'm not like that guy. Friends, one of the prideful tendencies that we have when we read the Bible, or when we listen to a sermon, is to first try to apply it to others. We think, oh, that person really needs to hear this. I really wish that they were here. I really hope they're listening. Brothers and sisters, if you're to fight against your own spiritual pride, you must first apply this parable to yourself. You must always apply the word of God first to yourself. You must take the log out of your own eye, or you take the speck out of your brother's eye. The Puritan pastor Richard Baxter wrote, Pride is so undiscerned by the most that it is commonly cherished while it is commonly spoke against. Friends, how many of you might be tempted to say the same thing as that Pharisee? I'm not so greedy. I certainly don't think of myself as unrighteous. And I am definitely not an adulterer. Matthew 5, 28, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Church, one of the curses of sin is that we are so blind to our own sin. It's why we need the church. It's why we need other brothers and sisters in our life who can point out that sin to which we are blind. Friends, we are so often blind to our sin. And friends, how quick we can be to compare ourselves to others and list off our own spiritual accomplishments in relation to others. But friends, how you measure up to one another, how you measure up to someone else, it matters not one bit. The question is, how do you compare to the perfectly holy and all-glorious God of all creation? That's the question. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, we must be on guard against spiritual pride in our own lives, but we must also guard against it as a church. Church, our job is not to look down in self-righteous judgment on society around us. The church does have a job to preach against and, and warn against the sins of our culture. We should be clear on what the Bible teaches about gender, human sexuality, Abortion and racism, to name a few. But not because we want to look in self-righteous judgment, but because we want to guard ourselves against the sins of our culture that are going to tempt us. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, brothers and sisters, we are called to preach the gospel. Preaching the gospel includes calling people to repentance. But we are not to stand in self-righteous judgment over the world around us. Why? Because such were some of you. My friends, we were no better. We were once just as lost until God sought us and saved us. We were not saved because we were somehow better than everyone around us, or we were somehow smarter than everyone around us, or we got it while others didn't. Now, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. My friends, spiritual humility is to recognize the depth of your own sin. And to recognize that you were saved not because of your own goodness. You were saved not because of your own goodness, but because of God's mercy. Friends, this type of spiritual humility was exemplified by the prayer of the tax collector. What a different prayer it was than the prayer of the Pharisee. The tax collector stood far off feeling himself unworthy and unable to draw near to God's presence because of the greatness of his sin. It reminds us of the ten lepers that we thought about a couple of weeks ago who had to cry out for Jesus' mercy from far off because they were unclean. This man did not have leprosy, but he saw himself just as unclean. He beat his breast in grief and sorrow over his sin, and he would not even lift his eyes to heaven because of the weight of guilt and shame that he felt before the Lord of glory. Friends, have you ever felt sorrow and shame over your sin like this? Have you ever felt the true weight of your wickedness before the Lord? Have you gotten on your knees before the Lord to plead for forgiveness? This tax collector made only one plea in his prayer. God Have mercy on me, a sinner. Unlike the Pharisee, this tax collector had the right view of himself. In fact, he agreed with the Pharisee's opinion of him in whole. He knew the burden of his sin before a holy God and he was humbled. And a literal translation of his prayer would be something like this. God, be propitious to me. In other words, God, please make atonement for my sin. Take away your wrath and show me your favor. I am helpless. I need you to do away with my sin. Friends, he pleaded for God to do what he could not do himself, to cleanse him, to forgive him, and to save him. He echoed the words of Psalm 51 and King David that Juliet read for us just a few minutes ago. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. 
But friends, this was a prayer of faith. He repented, and repentance always accompanies true faith. Repentance always accompanies true faith. And he pleaded for God's mercy. By asking God to make atonement for him, he looked not to himself and his own righteousness for his justification. He looked to God alone. But friends, that that is what faith is. As one pastor put it, faith is not a work that we do. Instead, it is raising the white flag of surrender. It's saying, I am helpless to do it on my own. Biblical faith is simply to humbly receive what God has done. Friends, the tax collector knew that it was only God who could cleanse him from his sin. He knew he was way too far gone. And so were all of we. And so he pleaded for God to have mercy. For God to make atonement for him. For God to do what he could not do and justify him. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is that every sinner, every single sinner who has cried out for mercy, who has cried out for God to be propitious and make atonement, well, God has answered their prayer at the cross. It was at the cross that Jesus did make atonement for all who repent and believe. With every wound, he paid the penalty for guilty sinners that they might be justified in God's sight, that they might receive eternal life. A friend, salvation comes not by your own efforts, but only on relying and trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. It's John Newton, the man who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He was saved by God while he was serving on a ship at sea. Uh, The ship was in the middle of a, a great storm and began to take on lots of water. In fact, most of those on the ship thought that they were about to perish. The situation was pretty dire. As Newton manned the pumps in effort to pump the water out of the ship and save the ship, he cried out for this. He said, if this, the pumps will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. Then he described what he thought next. Mercy. Mercy. What mercy can there be for me? This was the first desire I had breathed for mercy for many years. About six in the evening, the hold was free from water, and then came a gleam of hope. I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor. I began to pray. I could not utter the prayer of faith. I could not draw near to God and call him Father. My prayer for mercy was like the cry of the ravens, which yet the Lord does not disdain to hear. In the gospel, I saw at least a glimmer of hope. But on every other side, I was surrounded with black, unfathomable despair. Friends, the Lord did not disdain his prayer. But he answered his cry for mercy, and he was converted. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I have two very different men who prayed two very different prayers. But these men went to two very different destinies. It's the third point of the sermon. Look at verse 14. This is what Jesus says. I tell you, this one 
meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, how could this be? How could this terrible sinner, how could this corrupt thief, how could this despised member of society who had stolen from his countrymen go home forgiven and justified instead of the respected and upstanding Pharisee, the one who tried the hardest, the one who did the most, the one who looked the best, the one who kept more of the rules than the tax collector did? It's because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Well, friends, it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who humbled himself and pleaded for God's mercy. Therefore, before he even left the temple, he had been pardoned, declared righteous in the sight of God. All his sins, past, present, and future, had been forgiven in a moment. God made atonement for him. His destiny was eternal life. Well, the destiny of the Pharisee who trusted in his own righteousness was eternal judgment. Friends, to seek justification in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ alone is to exalt yourself. To seek justification in anything other than Jesus Christ is to exalt yourself. To think that you can be good enough on your own and that you can work your way to heaven by your own efforts is to exalt yourself. Friends, God does not want those who are great in their own eyes, but those who humble themselves. God does not want those who think that they are strong enough, but those who admit their weakness. Friends, if you trust in yourself and your own righteousness, one of two things will happen. One, you will grow proud like this Pharisee and you'll look down on others. Or second, you will despair. Well, this is what happens to those who are trusting in their own righteousness when they feel the conviction of sin. They despair. They don't know where to turn. In fact, this is what happened to Martin Luther before he came to understand and believe that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone. He was consumed by the guilt of his sin. Martin Luther, as a monk, was in misery. He once said this about his time as a Catholic monk. I kept the rule so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his sheer monkery, it was I. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. And church historian Bruce Shelley reports that as a monk, Luther pushed his body to health-threatening rigors of austerity. He sometimes fasted for three days and slept without a blanket in freezing winter. He was driven by a profound sense of his own sinfulness and of God's unutterable majesty and holiness. No amount of penance, no soothing advice from his superiors could calm Luther's conviction that he was a miserable, doomed sinner. Well, all he knew to do was to try harder and harder and harder and to do more and more and more. But friends, this is what it looks like to trust in your own righteousness. It is misery. It is a heavy burden that you cannot bear. 
Martin Luther had the right diagnosis. He saw the reality of his sin before a holy God. He had the right diagnosis. But he had the wrong treatment. He tried to treat himself rather than going to the great physician. My friends, this is the same deficient treatment prescribed by the other religions of the world. And it is a prescription that will lead to death. Our Muslim friends and neighbors seek to justify themselves by rituals of prayer and fasting. Buddhism prescribes ten meritorious deeds for a prosperous afterlife. Hinduism has karma. But the glory of Christianity is that you do not have to earn your way. Instead, you simply need to cry out for God's mercy. When the Holy Spirit opened Martin Luther's eyes for the glories of the Bible's teaching that justification is by faith alone, he said this, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. His days of fruitlessly trying to work his way into heaven were over. He could rest. And he found his rest in Christ alone. Well, Christian, if you are here and you have cried out for the mercy of God, you can rest too. Because the ground of your assurance, the assurance of your salvation is not in your good works. Your salvation does not rest in your hands. It rests in the hands of your Savior. It rests in the hands of Jesus who has rescued you from death to life. And he does not lose anyone who he gathered into his hands. My friends, it is the work of Jesus and Jesus alone that justifies guilty sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, the Father, made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, that verse goes to the very heart of the gospel. That verse goes to the very heart of the Christian faith. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did not know sin. The eternal son of God who has always existed, who will always exist. He came to earth and lived a perfect life as a man. He was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. And because he was perfect, the spotless Lamb of God was he, sinless and pure. He was qualified to offer himself up as a sin offering in place of guilty sinners. On the cross, God the Father placed the sins of all who would ever repent and believe on his Son, Jesus Christ. And this is how Martin Luther describes it. God sent his Son into the world heaped all the sins of all men upon him and said to him, Be Peter the denier, Paul the persecutor, blasphemer and assaulter, David the adulterer, the sinner who ate the apple in in paradise, the thief on the cross. In short, be the person of all men, the one who has committed the sins of all men. Well, friends, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are heaped on him as well. And he takes them. He takes them for you. And at the same time, you receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Imagine for a moment that you are 100 million dirhams in debt. 
somehow you had gotten a loan approved for 100 million dirhams. Don't think that's going to happen. But just imagine that you're 100 million dirhams in debt. Well, friends, that debt is your sin. And at the moment of salvation, your debt of sin, your 100 million dirham debt, that debt that you have no hope of ever even coming close to paying off, is heaped onto Jesus and he pays for it. Well, that is what Jesus did at the cross. But that is not all he did. Brothers and sisters, he did not just pay your debt. He gave you his righteousness as well. He did not just pay you 100 million dirham debt of sin as if, it is as if he freely gave you another 100 million dirhams. You go from 100 million dirhams in debt to 100 million dirhams in your bank account. Well, that extra 100 million dirhams is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus has taken your sin upon himself and he has given you his righteousness. His righteousness has been deposited into your account. You stand justified and righteous in the sight of God because he looks at you through the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Not your own good works. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And friends, what should your response be to this glorious good news? What is to humble yourselves and come. To give up your own efforts and to place your faith in Jesus Christ instead. This is the point of Jesus' interaction with his disciples and the children that were being brought to him in verses 15 through 17. We see the crowds of people were bringing their children, their infants, to Jesus that he might touch them and bless them. But his disciples rebuked these parents and tried to keep them and, and their children away. Now, the, the view of children in the first century, uh, first century Israel was much different than the attitude towards children today. Children were not the center of attention. They were not celebrated. They were viewed as relatively insignificant members of society. Sorry, kids. So Jesus' disciples seemed to think that he simply had more important people to see and more important things to do than to minister to these children. That is not what Jesus thought. Now, Jesus invited the children to come, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not stop them. Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Well, kids, that should be an encouragement to you to come to Jesus. You do not have to wait until you are older. You do not have to wait until you have accomplished something important in life. You do not have to wait until you even do a better job of obeying your parents. Jesus invites you to come to him now. Kids, if you have any questions about that, I am abundantly confident that your parents would be happy to talk to you more after the service. I would be happy to talk to you after the service. Friends, Jesus invited the children to come, but Jesus did not mean that it was only children who would be saved. He said the kingdom of God belongs to such as these to those who come as children, like children. What did Jesus mean? Well, children, especially infants, are completely dependent on others. They would not survive on their own, but they need their parents to provide their food and shelter and clothing and even their protection. 
Children certainly do not stand on their own merit. The point is that children generally, especially very young children, do not trust in themselves. Instead, they have an unwavering and complete trust in their parents. They unhesitatingly, without thinking, entrust themselves into their parents' care. Friends, that is how you were to come to Jesus, like little children, in complete trust and in confidence, full reliance, total faith. Friends, if you are here not a Christian, Jesus invites you to come to him. Friends, if you are here and you realize that you have been trusting in your own righteousness for salvation, Jesus invites you to come to him. To come to him with the faith and reliance of a child. Now, earlier in our service, not too long ago, we sang the, the hymn, Come Ye Sinners. Well, that hymn has these lines that we sang. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry or wait till you're better, you will never come at all. In other words, do not wait to come to Jesus until you feel as if you have cleaned yourself up or made yourself presentable. Friends, that is just another way of trusting in your own righteousness. Do not let your sin keep you from him. If you tarry, if you wait, if you delay, if you try to stand on your own two feet instead, you will never come at all. And that is because you can never make yourself better on your own. You cannot make yourself good enough on your own. You need the healing power of the great physician. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You need the atonement that Jesus made on the cross. Friends, God invites you to come as you are. He does not invite you to stay as you are. Jesus makes demands on those who follow him, but he invites you to come as you are. To bring all of your sin to him. So friends, like the tax collector, plead for God's mercy. Throw yourself at the foot of the cross. The glorious good news of the gospel is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Let's pray.